to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by HelpSpot. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm good. I'm uh, my feet are firmly planted on the ground. It's good. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad that you are feeling rooted today. I find that podcasting in free fall is not great. It's well. I mean, the pot filter gets funny, right? Sometimes it's floating away. It's hard to maintain distance from your microphone. <laughs> it's true. So we uh, we are going to have another draft today. This was uh, your idea. We're going to do robotic spacecraft draft. Yeah, you know, when in doubt, draft things, and I think it'll be a fun way for us to talk about space probes, basically. Yeah, it's it's an excuse to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, we have a little bit of news we wanted to uh, to get through. Uh, oh, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, it's mostly all sad news. <laughs> oh, there's there's some there's some good news, there's um, some... but mostly not. <laughs> so let's start with ExoMars, which is the European Space Agency's uh, mission to the Red Planet. It's actually it's one mission, but has two components. There is the Uh, orbiter which is looking at mars atmosphere and once it got to mars the orbiter had a lander that was going to basically kind of eject and go and land and study things like soil and it had some i think it had some seismic studying it was going to do it wasn't a long-term mission no it was going to last like three days or something two days yeah and a, a lot of it was sort of couch and like this is experimental right that was very much like the uh, SpaceX uh, landings where it's like, look, it might not work. It's fine if it doesn't work, which is good because it didn't work. <laughs> the This was going to be the ESA's first lander on Mars. Um, yeah. And so the good news is the Trace Gas Orbiter is in orbit and uh, they've got a spacecraft in orbit around Mars. Yay. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> So it seems it seems like what, what failed, uh, and it's still early days. Like they, I don't think even now as we record this, it's not completely sold, like completely solid what happened. But it seems like it maybe ejected its parachutes too early, um, so it hit the surface at like an estimated two hundred miles an hour, which is not good if you're a lander. It's uh, basically the end, the end of that. Yeah, I saw a lot of people uh, tweeting about this while it was going on because they got they got the signal most of the way down. That's the the amazing thing is like they the signal comes back and they're like, okay, we've got it, we've got it deploying, we've got it, you know, and then it, the signal stops. It's like, oh, um, that's bad. So that's interesting. Uh, people were also tweeting about how. Um, you know, there's this concept that like, it's hard to land on Mars and somebody pointed out it's actually, um, not hard at all to land on Mars. It's hard to, uh, land on Mars and not crash. (laughs) I think it's an important distinction though. Uh, there's a, a link in the show notes. The, uh, Mars reconnaissance orbiter has images of the landing site and they have a gif of before and after, and you can see what's believed to be the part of the parachute package and then uh basically a new tiny crater where this lander is yeah the the fact that we've got this kind of coverage where they can not only have the the imaging of the uh of of this spot but the imaging before and after of this spot so you can very clearly see the sort of remnants of stuff on the on the ground including a big black spot that is 
almost certainly the uh, where it smashed into the surface. Uh, it's pretty amazing that we've got this, this stuff there. So yeah, it didn't it didn't make it. They're trying to figure out why it failed. But the main the you know essentially the main mission, which is the orbiter is uh the trace gas orbiter is is fine so it's more of a learning process for uh for the european space agency and you know it is it is hard mars's atmosphere like they always say mars's atmosphere is thick enough that you have to deal with it but thin enough that you can't use it to stop and that makes it really hard to land on mars and there have been many i think i read somewhere that maybe it's even like more than half of attempted mars landings have failed like it's hard we've gotten used to it because the the NASA rovers on Mars have had a, a winning streak, right? There have been four in a row of those that have worked. But it used to be a lot more dicey and it still is a, a hard problem to solve and they, they didn't they didn't do it with uh Scaparelli. Yep. So uh I wanna talk about Juno a little bit. Juno courses uh. NASA's probe to Jupiter. And if you remember from our Juno episode, it was supposed to do two long orbits and then be inserted into a very tight orbit around the gas giant. It was going to study its atmosphere and and the underlying gases and basically like circle the planet in these tight, what they called science orbits. That was supposed to happen on October 14th. In fact, I had an all-day event on my calendar like named Juno Insertion, so I, I would go and check the news. And it um, it turns out that that wasn't able to, to take place. So a couple of days beforehand, they started getting everything in order. And there was an issue with basically two valves in the engine pressurization system. So my understanding is like all of these, all of this, all of these motors and all of this, like the fuel system and everything are extremely complicated plumbing. And they had these valves that were supposed to be opened within a few seconds of their command. And it took several minutes. And so you can imagine where, why that might be bad. I, I don't think NASA or JPL got into specifics about what these valves actually control. But you can imagine anything that's supposed to respond, you know, more or less instantly, if it takes several minutes to respond, how that is a, a bad situation to be in. Mm-hmm. So they postponed that October burn. The next possible burn will be on December 11th if they get this issue uh, figured out. So right now they, they can still image Jupiter, but only when it's uh, close to the planet in this you know elliptical orbit this, that it's in currently. Yeah, this 50-day orbit that they're supposed to come out of, but they have to burn to get out of it. And if they don't, you know, first there were the, the questions about the pro- the propulsion system, and then there was the safe mode that happened. And so we're left with this question of like every, you know, every 52 days or whatever it is, they get to try again and consider whether they can they can put it into the right in the right spot. But they have to. It's scary, right? I mean, they, I, I'm sure they're working the problem and, they're, and they'll come out with some clever things, but it, it does um, really limit their mission if they have to wait, um, you know, 52 days for every pass instead of getting in that tighter orbit. Right. So the the safe mode you mentioned happened on October 18th. Uh, this was as uh, Juno was making its approach uh, to Jupiter, getting closer and closer. There was some software issue on the onboard computer, and all, all these spacecraft. Uh, we'll get into we'll get into it a little bit. I think in the draft, even they have these safe modes that they go into. That if they experience something that they don't understand, that the the software isn't prepared to handle, it goes into safe mode. It basically says, "Hey, Earth, tell me what to do." And it entered the safe mode uh, on its own. I, I read some con- I read some conjecture that 
you know, maybe it was an issue uh, that experienced uh, more radiation than it was expecting. I think we talked about how it's got basically this like lead lined box with all the guts in it. And maybe that, you know, is an issue. I, I don't know if that's, you know, factual or not. NASA hasn't said, but it took place during the second orbit. So really the only images we have from Juno currently are from its first orbit way back in August. And so you can, you can see why this could be scary. Like if, if they can't make the burn to get close around Jupiter the way they had planned and this thing in her safe mode, every time it gets close due to something environmental, like that's a really bad combination. That's, that's a bad combination. So hopefully they get this worked out. It seems the current status seems that it, it, came out of the safe mode that it seems okay right um and and hopefully that there will be new images here on this december oh, december 11th pass but uh lots of lots of uh, unexpected surprises with juno so far yeah it's not what you like but fortunately they they do you know we've gotten very good the people who work on these probes at debugging the uh you know their computers from millions of miles away and so that's you know that's what they're that's what they're doing, and they're going to be able to figure out what's going on and and hopefully have a workaround for it. But the challenge is, like you said, you only get to do this every so often, and you want the timing to be right. So if they miss this pass, then it'll be another fifty days, and you know we keep on on that approach. And hopefully they don't go into a safe mode, so that even if they have to go around another another round, they can do some imaging. They did release some images, um, and you know just from the previous pass, there's been a lot of good science that's been done where they're able to see deep into the Jupiter atmosphere. And I think what I read was, you know, essentially as deep as Juno's imagery can go and sensors can go, that they're still seeing, you know, they're, they're able to see all the way down into the atmosphere to that point, that it's still it's still gas all the way down. Eventually, that you know, there's a phase transition, but they, um, you know, it's cool because so they've already peered deeper into Jupiter than ever before, but it's limited by where these uh, these. Uh, longer durations between passes. So hopefully they'll get it worked out. It's pretty cool. We'll have a link in the show notes to the Juno Cam page, which is Juno Cam is actually a public camera. Images are uploaded to the web for the public, basically to to play with and to use. And there, there's some examples on that page of some things people have made with that. And it's not all scientific, right? People are making art out of this stuff, which I think is really, really neat. Uh, so the Juno Cam images are started to trickle out. You know, like... New Horizon, it, it's it's not instant. It takes time for the data to get back, and it takes time for NASA and the other scientific groups working on this to get things published and posted in a way that makes sense. So even if even if you know the worst case comes true, and this is in every you know fifty odd day orbit, there will still be stuff coming out and trickling out, and and still um, hopefully some success could be realized. Yeah. So, uh, Jason, do you want to take a break and then we come back and start the draft? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so we're going to draft after this word from HelpSpot. If you deal with any kind of customer support, you need HelpSpot. It's the most comprehensive and flexible help desk software around. With HelpSpot, you can let your customers reach you however they choose. You can use email, web, phone. It doesn't really matter where it's coming from. HelpSpot ends up being the central place for all of your customer support stuff. You can turn disjointed email exchanges into meaningful conversations with your customers. Get a quick view of any of the trends that are happening related to support requests. Get ahead on a problem before you might have realized it otherwise. There's real-time reporting so you can see exactly 
exactly what's going on. And HelpSpot can host everything for you. But you can also run HelpSpot on your own servers if you need to. You get source code access for custom branding, direct SQL access for custom reports, extensive APIs. It's a great value. They're committed to giving you unrivaled value for your money. Put simply, uncomplicated pricing is the key here. It includes everything you need for your help desk. You get unlimited tickets, mailboxes, custom fields, reports, and knowledge bases. For one simple price, there aren't any hidden extras or complicated tiers. It's able to easily manage customers that get a few requests a day, all the way up to enterprise clients with 500 email mailboxes receiving millions of support emails. So as you grow, or no matter how big you are, you can get your customer support burden reduced with HelpSpot. HelpSpot's customers include those startups and the Fortune 500 companies and everybody in between. There's IT departments and call centers, customer service groups, healthcare, education, transportation, and e-commerce sectors. It's all over the place. They've been doing this for more than 12 years, so you can trust that they're going to be there when you need them. HelpSpot is free for up to three users, so if you want to give give it a, a test drive, you can at no cost to you, and it's inexpensive for larger teams. And better yet, you get 10% off for life when you use the code LIFTOFF when you sign up for HelpSpot. So go to HelpSpot.com slash liftoff to start a trial today or sign up for a free one-on-one demo to learn more about how HelpSpot can serve your support team. Thank you to HelpSpot for supporting Liftoff. All right, Jason, do you want to walk us through the rules? I did I did put some rules in because, you know, some of these drafts that I do, people um, pick weird things <laughs> like Skeletor. <laughs> um, and that's no good because Skeletor is not a space probe. So here are the rules. has to be made by humans. The moon is not a space probe. And shot into space by humans. It needs to be real and not fictional. It needs to be uncrewed. And it has to leave Earth orbit. This is not a satellite draft. We could do that some other time. So put <laughs> so put your Sputniks away, is what I'm saying. And that's it. So space probes. I agree to your rules. Okay, and I think thank all you. my picks conform to those rules. Excellent. So how do we uh how do we choose who goes first? The, I don't the first know. Pick. Hmm. I think uh, I will grant it to you. Why don't you go first? It was your idea. Oh. You read the rules. Why don't you go first? Well, that's very nice of you. Well, then, with my first pick in the space probe draft, I got to pick. I have to pick what I think is clearly the number one pick on the board. And I, it, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't pick it. It's Voyager Two. Interesting. Voyager 2 is my number one pick. Now, let me let me tell you why. Voyager 2, first off, it's got that uh, gold record on it. <laughs> so does Voyager 1. Voyager 2 also has it. Gold record, got some music, got some people. It's great. But the most important thing about Voyager 2, not only is this one of my space probes, because as a kid, I got to witness Voyager 2's exploration growing up. So it launched when I was six years old. And then it went to uh, Jupiter when I was like eight years old and Saturn when I was 10 years old, Uranus when I was 15 years old, and Neptune when I was 18 years old. So in my formative years, this was my space probe. And the most amazing thing about Voyager 2 is it explored four planets. It, It explored Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. It's the only probe to go to Uranus and Neptune. Um, so quite a, a special moment where they were able to figure out this trajectory that would get it to hit the four outer planets. And uh, so it, it, it's a it, it, it's done the most exploration in some ways of anything that humanity has ever 
mm-hmm. uh, created because it's been to four different planets and it's still doing work today because it's uh it's exploring interstellar space and uh letting us know when the influence of the sun begins to wane so i think you know voyager 2 for me is the winner voyager 1 is great but it only went to jupiter and saturn uh voyager 2 got to got to continue on to uranus and neptune and discover lots of moons and our you know our good imagery of uranus and neptune remains the voyager 2 imagery that's still that's how we think of those planets because that's the that that's the only close look we've gotten right so that was very high on my list for all of the same reasons and it really is bonkers to me that we've got two planets that we've only visited once now of course we've only just now seeing pluto which was a planet at the time that new horizons launched but um yeah voyager 2 i think is definitely in the hall of fame for for all of those reasons um i read that it's expected to keep transmitting uh, until 2025 when its fuel is is estimated to run out uh, or or i guess get so weak that it can't transmit anymore um which is 48 years after it was launched that's one heck of a lifetime that's pretty good, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. It's got, I, I think it's, you know, it's radioisotopes that are generating, uh, re- generating its power and they're, and they've lasted quite a while, given that this is something, a probe launched in 1977. That's amazing. And, and I mean, the background here, uh, we'll link to the Wikipedia page about it, but it, it, it's, um, you know, basically there's foresight was involved here. This wasn't just luck. In the early sixties, they realized that there would be this alignment in the 70s uh that would allow a single probe to uh, visit those four outer planets and that's when nasa started working on this idea of a grand tour probe mm-hmm. and uh and then they they derived the voyagers from the mariner um kind of like a space probe family but uh yeah pretty awesome and uh and what a what a what an opportunity that was not missed to send one probe to view those four planets that's uh that's a good first pick. Uh that was kind of num- in number 1 or my number 2 spot. I think though that for uh for my first pick, I'm going to choose uh New Horizons. I think for a lot of the reasons you spoke about Viking 1, it's it's breaking new ground. It is um to a degree I think this generation's um space probe if you will mm-hmm. you know that that it was so heavily in the news <laughs> it's not your father's space probe it's not it's not yours yeah it's uh it's the young man's space probe if you will <laughs> and it's interesting i mean it launched when pluto was still a planet you have all that drama um and i think it's obviously historical data coming uh, from the pluto system but now it's newly on life and its extended mission looking at a kuiper belt object um that will take that pass will take place on January first, twenty nineteen, giving us not only new information about Pluto but new information about what's beyond. You know, we we talk about um, you know the mysterious planet in the Kuiper Belt, these Kuiper Belt objects that are so little is known about them. And New Horizons, uh, if things go as planned, will continue to give us new information about the the outer reaches of the solar system. And uh, I think that's great. And I think NASA's done a killer job, as we've spoken about at length, with the PR game with this. Yeah, oh, yeah. Everyone saw those images. It was on the it was on the cover of every newspaper. 
Um, it was at the top of every website I visited. The trickle of information over time, too, which again had reasons scientifically, but so brilliant that there's like they that they spent the better part of a year trickling out more images and more information, and you know, and then they've got another they've got this extended mission, so they get to do even more down the road. It's great. This was number two on my list after Voyager two. I I, I actually did have New Horizons that high, so I think the draft is going according to form, and I think you made a great pick. Would you have picked Voyager 2 first, or would you have always picked New Horizons? Um, I think New Horizons probably edged it out, but uh, it's that's a super close race. Like I'm not upset that you got it first. So Okay, good. Everybody's happy. This isn't like so a far. draft at all. All right. Just, should I, should I ruin it now? Ruin it. All right. I am going to pick, for my next pick, the probably the biggest producer of images that I use on my desktop. Mm. And that's Cassini. I figured this would be in your top top two or three. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was a it was a number three, and I'm taking it number three. Cassini and Huygens they 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 left together, and I'm going to take them both. So Cassini, uh, it, it's a it's a Saturn probe. It's um it it's taken amazing numbers of pictures of uh of Saturn. It's been in Saturn in Saturn's orbit since 2004 amazing and uh and just the pictures like uh, uh like silhouetted saturn with the sun behind the rings and things like that just the pictures are incredible uh so uh, just that alone and the amount of uh and the amount of uh uh information that's been gathered about saturn's moons and saturn's rings and it is our most photogenic planet right and cassina has taken some incredible pictures of saturn so much more than we got from voyager 1 and 2 so uh that alone would be enough it's going to it's going to crash into into uh, saturn's atmosphere with a grand finale in in mm-hmm. uh, late 2017 which is sad but uh but what a great what a great uh, mission to spend 13 years floating around saturn that's pretty awesome and then on top of that the huygens probe which was deployed from cassini and rode out there with cassini uh, it landed on titan which is our most remote landing of a space probe and gave us a huge amount of information about the surface of Titan with its weird, uh, weird uh, chemistry of the, the super cold chemistry where water is basically a rock, but there are lakes of, of um, what methane and ethane. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. So that, that uh, you throw that on top that we, that we uh, landed a little probe on Titan that came out of uh out of Cassini, so uh, just it's great all around. I think it's one of the one of the best probes ever, and that's why I pick it number three. You you left out one reason that it was it was high on my list as well. That in the the two thousand eight flyby of Enceladus, in which it passed within fifty kilometers, you know, trying to detect hydrocarbons in those plumes. Um, that just seems like a super awesome maneuver <laughs> to pull off, uh, being that close to something and. Uh, the reason it is going to be sort of ditched in Saturn's atmosphere is that they don't want to disrupt any of these moons, right. several of which you know could contain uh, the recipe for life. So uh, I totally agree with you. It's a spectacular mission. We should do a deep dive on Cassini for an uh, episode because it's maybe, just fascinating. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, as it's uh, getting ready to, to wrap up. And it also did like a Venus flyby and an Earth flyby and a Jupiter flyby, which is pretty cool. So it visited it visited a bunch of other planets. I guess I should say, you know, if you count... 
if you count uh, these kind of inner inner system slingshots, like yeah, let's give it to Cassini for doing uh, multi planet passes too, but it's doing it as part of its orbital mechanics to get out to Saturn, which is not quite right. the same. Like New Horizons, I used I think went around Jupiter. Yeah, um, it's it's a pretty common now. It's a common maneuver. You know, uh, talking about the Grand Tour, uh, that was you know that trajectory was was made possible because of the alignment of the planets, but also that the these gravitational slingshots. It was really the first time that I think they were used. Yeah. Um, uh, at least at least more than once uh, in a flight. Yeah, so a whole big gravitational assist thing happening there. All Lots right, fun so, stuff. So there you go, Cassini Huygens. It's good. Uh, I'm going to change gears a little bit, and I am going to pick, uh, for my second choice, uh, the Opportunity rover. So it fits in with the things that left mm-hmm. Earth orbit, but it's, instead of what we've picked so far, they're flying. This, one, this, this guy is driving around the Martian surface and has been doing so since 2004. Yep. It was high, very high on my list. Very high on my list, I have to say. Yeah, it was a good, it's a good pick. This these initial missions for Opportunity and its sibling uh, rover were only supposed to be ninety Martian days, <laughs> and here we are now, twelve years later, and uh, one of the two uh, Opportunity is still is still going. Its initial objective was to study rocks and soil, and to look at data from things like the reconnaissance orbiter and other uh, satellites around Mars to help verify the information that we were interpreting from their images, which I think is is super smart, right? Like to have, we think this is X and then you have a river drive over to and say, yes, it is X or no, it's not. And you can calibrate what you are learning uh, from orbit with science going on in the ground. Uh, currently, it has traveled just shy of 27 miles. It's about 43 and a half kilometers. It is at 10 mission extensions. Uh, this is a record for off-Earth mileage, by the way. There have been issues, of course. Uh, Spirit, its twin, went silent in 2010 after getting stuck, and uh, believed that it was basically starved for solar power and 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 went to the great robotic pasture in the sky. But Opportunity is is still rolling. Uh, there's some issues with its computer. It, it can now only keep continents in RAM long enough to transmit to Earth. It had some problems with its with its uh, storage banks because of its age. It's worked so much further than so much longer than anticipated. But it's still going, and it's still doing viable science all these years later. And I think that's super cool. Yeah, I think it's uh, that was my number one of of uh, any sort of similar rovers of which we have four. That was my number one because it has lasted so long and gone so far. Uh, the equivalent, like it's gone past, it's gone longer than a marathon now. I think, even though it drives very slowly, and it's just pretty great that we've got. We've talked about it before. Familiarity with Mars, like it's just a it's a place that we've right. been. <laughs> because yeah. of these rovers and opportunity is is great well that's great good good pick everybody's everybody's still happy because these are all great probes nothing super controversial yet uh and i'm not gonna I, I i'm not gonna make it super controversial either because i'm going to pick with my my fifth pick galileo so i'm staying mm. in the outer solar system okay galileo is sort of the cassini equivalent for um for jupiter so this is the we did we did a couple of flybys with the Voyagers and we you know we've done some Jupiter flybys but uh, Galileo 
spent 14 and a half years in the Jupiter system, starting in 2003, taking pictures of Jupiter and studying Jupiter and its moons. Uh, plus it did, yes, it did some orbital flyby stuff too to get there. But it's pretty great. Like Jupiter is the most important planet in our solar system in terms of the big picture. I mean, Earth, because we live there. But like in terms of studying other other planets, it's, it's uh, larger than all the other planets put together. It's an incredibly important uh, uh, object for us to understand. And we just flown by it. So with Galileo, we got to spend a lot of time there. Now, one of the, my favorite things about Galileo is that it's also, we talk about Juno, uh, also a Jupiter probe. And uh, we talk about, you know, are they going to fix what's going on and figure out how to work around it? Galileo is a great example of people who are working on a probe having to figure out how to get by with an equipment failure. Because Galileo had a big, high bandwidth, high gain antenna, and it failed to deploy. So their number one radio, their super fast, high quality radio, didn't work. And they actually decided that this is probably because after the Challenger explosion of 1986, Galileo was basically ready to go and it had to sit in storage for four and a half years until they got uh, not only the program uh, up and running again, but the uh, orbital uh, placement so that they could get it to Jupiter. And they think that the the, uh, lubricants in the uh, antenna basically seized up during that time and and they 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 took it back and forth between california and florida uh three times i think it it was a it was a mess so instead they ended up using this low gain antenna which had way less uh, bandwidth and um with all of that galileo was still able to do all of this uh studying and spend 14 years around jupiter so it's a it's a you know even with a major equipment failure it was able to do what it needed to do which is pretty cool and then of course like cassini is going to do it did that thing where it uh it uh, crashed down into into uh jupiter as its last act that's good that's a solid pick lots of good pictures from that one too Lots of good, lots of good uh, Jupiter Moon stuff. Lots of Europa IO. Lots of great stuff from that too. Good stuff. Uh, I'm going to go to another mission that was actually held up because of the the shuttle accident. I'm going to go with Magellan. Wow, which is referred to as the Venus Radar Mapper. Uh, Mapper is kind of a funny word. It launched uh, in 1989. And its mission was to map the surface of Venus using radar. So uh, like a lot of other planets, we can't see the surface of Venus, uh, even through telescopes, because of the cloud tops, which we spoke about uh, on the Venus episode. Again, it's a terrible, hot mess there. But it was uh, an extremely successful mission. It mapped some 98% of Venus's surface, and Really, what we know about its surface comes from these images. Big river-like channels for lava, the pancake-shaped volcano, volcanoes that we spoke about. Um, the idea that this is being you know, resurfaced at times. Uh, and also showed a lack of wind erosion, uh, which was interesting. It's been you know, long thought and believed that this atmosphere of Venus is, in addition to being very hot and very uh, pressure-driven, um, that they could be drastic winds at the surface. And this seems to maybe counteract that or maybe indicate that the surface is still too young to have given way to erosion, unlike what we see 
on Mars. So it's, you know, it showed us a lot about our, our, our next innermost neighbor. And you look at some of these maps and if you didn't, I mean, it, it, it looks otherworldly, of course, but it looks like maps, radar maps you may have seen of Earth. I mean, the, the imagery is really stunning and uh, it's still to this day the best pictures we have of the planet. So it's a big thumbs up for me. Wow. You are a Venus lover, it turns out. I do like Venus. Interesting. Interesting. That was not on my list. I gotta say, that was not that was not uh, for me. Although I do have something Venus related on my list for lower down. Maybe we'll get to it. Hmm. Um, yeah. So let's see. Where do I want to go next? I think I I think I want to go back to Mars. Okay. Um, get nervous. Really? Why are you Why are well, you nervous? What are you What are you gonna pick? Uh, well, I'm gonna pick a Mars rover. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna pick the one. The what is it? The Mars Mars Observer, the one that blew up <laughs> because we <laughs> measured. Uh, they measured uh, the units wrong. That would be yeah. no good. That's no. Bad. I'm gonna pick Curiosity. Okay. So Curiosity <laughs> is the is the car that we sent to Mars. Mm. So we sent a, a skateboard. <laughs> we sent a, we, we sent a skateboard and then we sent like a golf cart and then we sent an SUV to Mars. And and Curiosity is the SUV. It is the it is the 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 third generation rover on Mars. It's got the big wheels. It's rolling around to this day. Uh it's it's been there since August 2012 and it is uh you know all I love all of these. I almost went with the Mars Pathfinder, which is the skateboard one because that was the that was the one that set us down this path of like okay we can make stuff that rolls around on mars this is awesome let's do more of that and we have done more of that and it's been really amazing so um so curiosity is the latest and greatest it it has uh many more capabilities it's got faster data transmission it's got awesome cameras it's got those big wheels so they can go to all sorts of interesting places and given how long um, uh, that opportunity has been out there. I have high hopes that curiosity is going to impress us and last a lot longer than we thought. Um, but uh, there's also a legacy here. We've talked about the Mars 2020 rover, which is based on curiosity. So the mm-hmm. idea here is that the the next generation rover is going to be, you know, the, the groundwork is going to be laid by curiosity for that too, which is pretty great. So we have four, we have four vehicles that we've landed on Mars, uh, two of which are still running. You pick one, I'm going to pick the other one. So curiosity. It was my next pick. Oh, look at that. You're trying to corner the, uh, the, the, the market on Mars rovers, aren't you? You're going to leave me. Well, you can you can pick. There's other. There's we got more. We got more. But I, I got to get my Mars rover in there too. I can't let you have all the fun on Mars. So okay. curiosity. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a hard left here. Whoa. And I'm gonna pick 1999's Stardust. So we oh, spoke. Wow. We spoke about Stardust uh, in passing uh, in a previous episode. This was a, a spacecraft that was designed to basically. Across the wake of a comet and collect cosmic dust and return that dust to Earth for analysis. And all that worked as expected. It used this uh, gel matrix basically to catch these particles and then basically drop them back by Earth. There's a picture on Wikipedia of the return capsule. Uh, basically, it looks like a big metal box and those uh, materials were safe and sound. 
uh, Inside. They returned in 2006. And like uh, like some of these other probes, it got a mission extension in 2007. It was decided that it would visit the Temple 1 comet, which it did in February 2011. So Stardust... Um, it's cool. It was the first time we had uh, return materials from a probe. Of course, you know, astronauts brought back moon rocks, but this was something that was done completely robotically and I think a an underrated and perhaps even forgotten mission that is uh, it's kind of cool. I didn't have that one on my list, but I did think about it because the idea that it's a a, uh, a sample return mission from the comet that, that we've talked about on this podcast, the difficulty of doing sample return missions, that it's it's hard to do that. Mm-hmm. And because uh, there's the asteroid sample return mission that they're talking about. And it's like, this is tough stuff because you got to you got to get back. Sending them out is not the problem. Getting getting them back and then landing something back on Earth that we can analyze is really hard. So, all right, Stardust, that's a good one. You know, I don't know where to go next because I got uh, I got a lot of similar things here. Um, huh. I think I'm gonna go to Venus. Okay. And I know that's that's unusual, but I think I'm gonna go to Venus, and I think I'm gonna pick Venera Nine. <laughs> which is a Soviet space probe. It's on my list. Oh, good, good. Well, because it's because you love Venus. Venera 9 landed. Um, now, it doesn't have the record because I believe Venera 10 landed a little bit long or lasted a little bit longer. But Venera 9 produced some pretty great photos of the surface of Venus. And those are hard to come by because when your, your probes only last about an hour at the surface of Venus. Um but it, it is it 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 is a it landed, it survived for a little bit, it took some pictures and sent them back. They're trying very hard to keep it. You think about like keeping a computer processor cool, like they mm-hmm. had to build this incredible cooling system just so that it could last an hour yep. on the surface of Venus. But they did it, and so we have pictures of the surface of Venus, which strangely enough look very similar to the pictures that Huygens took of the surface of Titan because when it's just kind of monochrome and rocks, even though the chemistry is very different because it's very hot and high pressure here as opposed to low pressure and super cold at Titan, but in the end, it's just a whole bunch of rocks. Still, amazing technical achievement to get down to the bottom of a Venus and land and survive for any amount of time at all. And uh, I think this is our first Soviet space probe too, so... I got that going for me. Yeah, that's a good pick. It was it was about midway on my list. Um, I like the you know the the idea of the images, and this was 1975, so it was, it was a while ago. Um, and they R- Russia had a very extensive Venus program for a long time in the 70s, and yeah, and like, like you you mentioned some other landers, they did some orbital stuff. Um, they definitely laid a lot of the groundwork where you know we didn't get there until a good bit later. Mm-hmm. So I think if this is uh, counting, this is this is this pick will be the last. This is counting. Some sort so of yes, bonus round. We could do a bonus round. Yeah, we can bring out our dad about what we didn't pick. Sure. <laughs> oh, I've got I, I've got one in my notes that says it's basically a break glass for emergency. So <laughs> I choose that one for the end. Um, I think I'm going to go with I think I'm going to go back to Mars, and I think I'm going to choose Viking One. Oh, right. So uh, you you spoke about. Vehicles we've landed on Mars. This was the spur, the first spacecraft to land on Mars. Mm-hmm. 
way back in August 1975. So, you know, similar time frame uh, to the uh, the Soviet Venus missions. And it was it was designed and everything was put in place to land on July 4th, 1976, uh, which was the U.S. Bicentennial. So it launched the year before. Um, they got there. They said the, la- the landing site wouldn't work. So it actually landed on July 20th. But it sent data to Earth for 2,300 days until mm-hmm. November 1982. And this may go down as the saddest way a robotic mission has ended. The ground crew sent a faulty command that overwrote the antenna pointing software. Oh. And they lost contact with it. And they tried over the course of a long time, actually, to re established communication um even i think even like years later when they thought it maybe lined up again but um they were unsuccessful in reviving it the mission was to test soil for signs of life uh and obviously the, the mid-70s in a very basic way they didn't find any but the first spacecraft to land on mars is one you know it's it's one for the history books and i like the the bicentennial aspect to mm-hmm. it that like we're going to land the bicentennial to celebrate america and then they missed it by 16 days yeah, the uh, Vikings were, we can talk about MySpace probes again, right? Like, this was our conception of Mars. This was, m- when I was a kid, this is what we had, is 1976, Viking 1 and Viking 2 took pictures of Mars. We had pictures of the surface of Mars, which is pretty great. And again, it's a lot of rocks, <laughs> but uh, it's a surface of another planet. And that those those really stuck in stuck in my mind, certainly, when I was a kid. That was our conception of Mars for a very long time until we uh, moved on with the with the little rovers, really. So do we do uh, bring it to bring out your dead? I'm going to choose the weirdest thing left on your list. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say it's just a choice because I don't have anything. I mean, one of the reasons I picked Venera is that the rest of uh, my choices were going to be repeating myself. The other things that I had, is I, I had a bunch of backup Mars rovers in case somebody picked more than one mars rover i'm looking at you so i also had spirit and i had pathfinder if i had another pick i would probably go pathfinder just because i do love that little skateboard i've got the big book that they did that matthew gollenbeck like wrote around the the who was one of the one of the people i mean we got to know like mars pathfinder people don't people um, who weren't paying attention then don't realize like because then we did spirit and opportunity and and uh and now we also have seen curiosity but pathfinder was like that was unbelievable like the fact that they did it and they had the little skateboard and it moved around on the surface and and looked at stuff and we we got to know those scientists and they were they they did books and i've got that book with the it comes with 3d glasses so that you can um, look at the at the 3d shots that they took and it's pretty amazing and i look at it now and i think we got really excited about this and then we, you know we ended up with three more of these rolling around that were bigger and more capable but at the time it was pretty huge so i probably would have picked pathfinder over spirit and then the only other one I had on my list was Voyager 1 because I felt like Voyager 1 is also pretty awesome and it's just it didn't go to the extra planets that, that Voyager 2 did. That's all I had. Okay. Uh, so I as well have two left on my list. Uh, the first being Surveyor 1, which is the first U.S. soft landing on another surface. It was on the moon in 1966 and its mission was basically to understand that the lunar surface to make sure the lunar lander they were designing and building would work. Um, so a lot of question of, you know, is this just a thin crust over something? How much weight, how much mass can this hold up? Um, and it was, it came at the end of a long string of failures. If you, if you go and look at the Ranger lunar probe program that the United States tried, 
lots of disasters in there. I mean, that, that Wikipedia page is just full of like failure after failure, as you would expect in early days. Um, but Severia 1 marked a, a big win for the U.S. and helped uh, scientists and, and engineers make sure the lunar lander would uh, be able to do what it needed to do. Okay. Uh, my last pick, um, uh, and this is one along with Stardust. In fact, it's linked to Stardust because the the comet that Stardust mission extension was um, uh, slated for and went and visited was actually visited by a previous NASA mission called Deep Impact, which, uh, you know... Also a movie. Also a movie. Uh, NASA, from what I read, uh, promises that that was coincidental. Mm. Uh, Take that as, uh, you know, take that how you will. But uh, Deep Impact's mission was to fly to this um, Temple One comet and then basically launched an 815-pound impactor into the comet uh, to basically... Uh, knock a big chunk of it off and study the debris cloud and the dust and the ice that was expected to come out of it. Uh, that debris cloud was far more dust than ice. Uh, there was no retrieval. It's not like what we're doing now with asteroids or what Stardust did, but it was just pictures and understanding of, of what it was made of. Um, Deep Impact would then visit three more comets and actually work all the way until 2013. And when Stardust came came by the comet in 2011, it actually uh, imaged the impactor, uh, its location on the comet, and actually been kind of mostly covered up by dust again, hmm. kind of being buried again. But um, you know, one of those missions that's um, again not well known, but sort of fun. And and you know, now we're talking about this, this uh, Osiris Rex where it's going to go up and and blast some nitrogen, just collect a little dust. Uh, there's nothing subtle about Deep Impact, right? No. You're you're launching basically a, a grand piano or something at this comet to see what happens. Yeah, that's a good one. I have one more that I I meant to put on my list and I, I left it off just because I, I I knew we wouldn't get to it, which is something that's called Celine. Although the people in Japan largely know it by its nickname, which is Kaguya, and it was a moon probe. It was a lunar orbiter, so it went in lunar orbit, which is not Earth orbit. Um, and since you picked, uh, I, I thought we were going to have a debate about the moon, but since you picked Surveyor One, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it in here. The thing that's notable about it, because I like the pretty pictures, I think that's been very clear from the the things that I picked. Celine had an HD TV camera on it, and so it got to take these amazing HD video uh, pictures of. Uh, the moon and the earth rising above the moon and some pretty great stuff that we hadn't seen in a long time since the Apollo days. And it, it was, uh, it came up with some fun imagery and that gets, uh, gets the Japanese space agency on the list too, which is good. I almost picked their, uh, their little troubled, um, their troubled Venus probe too, that like missed. Oh and, yeah. And, and, and they spent like four years getting it to finally be in a Venus orbit where it could do its science, which is right. an amazing achievement. That was, that's an honorable mention too. It's good. I feel, I feel solid about our, our 15 missions here. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, there's some good ones. The top 10, that's a great top 10 list of, uh, of missions of, of, of space probes. So I hope everybody out there enjoyed walking through the, uh, the greatest hits, humanity's greatest hits. There they are. <laughs> If you want to learn uh, more about these probes and missions, there'll be links in the show notes. 
Relay.fm slash liftoff slash 32. You can get in touch there. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at Liftoff Podcast. You can find Jason at Snell on Twitter, and he writes sixcolors.com. You can find me on Twitter at ISMH. Until our next mission, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.